We're living in a period of human history where connectedness is the standard and disconnection is the exception. With all of our cell phones, our tablets, our satellite phones, our computers, our pagers and internet connections, we are constantly connected to those around us. Now being connected to those we love and regularly getting updates, videos, pictures and communication regarding their activities is an amazing blessing. As a grandfather, it doesn't get much better than this. And we have some pictures today. I'm going to ask him just put the slides up. First one, this here happens to be a picture from when Nathan was born, Pastor Nathan, over 30 years ago. And our oldest grandson seeing this picture this week uh, as his mom had taken it out said, oh, Lucy May is there. And the middle daughter is Naomi, who happens to be uh, the mother of Lucy May, but they look just exactly alike. And so the oldest grandson thought that's who it was, and oh, what a special time. Let's look at another one. Uh, our, our daughter, granddaughter Maddie, Pastor Nathan's daughter, it was her first time to shoot a bow this week. Wow, was that exciting for Grandpa Daryl to get that video and that, those pictures. We'll look at the next one. Uh, our youngest grandson, he loves to ride the horsey in the backyard. That was pretty special to get that picture. And then uh, on Friday morning, our oldest granddaughter, Emmy, uh, they were heading up to their family cabin, which is up by the Crane Lake area, and it's almost a six-hour drive from home, plus it takes about an hour to boat back in to get to the cabin. And so mom and dad said, you can take anything you want along for the ride. She grabbed all kinds of pillows, stuffed animals, all of that. What a blessing to uh, get these kinds of pictures. It doesn't get much better than this. We also received this week the video ultrasound of our next grandchild that's in utero right now. So being connected like this is amazing. It's like being there uh, right there in real time and yet we're not. But you know there's another kind of connectedness that isn't always good. In fact, in the kind of societal connectedness we're, we're talking about today, uh, you will hear buzz, buzzwords like acceptance, tolerance, affirming, diversity, inclusiveness, intersectionality, open and affirming, socially just, welcoming, love wins, moderation, pleasurable, group think, and being canceled, just to name a few. And the idea behind these terms is a form of monoculturalism, globalism and pluralism, where all humanity fits under one umbrella, the same umbrella. And this is the very heartbeat of the world right now, where everything is deemed acceptable and everything needs to be accepted by everyone. This is the new connect that is pushed in our culture and it is fostered intensely right now on social media. It's fostered by the media itself in our educational institutions, our schools of higher learning, and also by many politicians. Well, let me say that God did not call his people to this kind of inclusiveness where everything and anything goes. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1, we're actually called to be distinct. We shouldn't all fit under the same umbrella as everybody else in the culture does. God calls us to be distinct as Christians, and this distinction begins with being united to believers only. 
Verse 14 starts, and it's the key to this passage right here. It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now remember, we have the ministry of reconciliation. We've talked about that for two weeks now. So we're not to isolate ourselves from the unbelieving world. That isn't what it's saying. It's just that we're not to adopt its practices, its, its values, and, and get linked up in those ways. Now please understand today that idolatry was woven into every aspect of life in the Greco-Roman world. Idolatry was everywhere and it was connected to everything. It was woven into the marketplace. It was tied to employment. Guilds weren't necessarily secular institutions as they had religious components to them as well. A person's social life was often tied to pagan idols and even family life was integrated with the worship of so-called household gods. Political life not only included the worship of Caesar, the emperor, but also regional and local leader gods were also to be exalted as well. Idol worship, in fact, was often part of a community's solidarity and unity. And Christians never had to look very far for idolatry because it was everywhere. Does that sound kind of familiar to us? Sound like where we're living? In Corinth, for example, there were 12 temples, which is why the Apostle Paul devoted three chapters in 1 Corinthians to idolatry and to the consumption of meat that was dedicated to idols. In Corinth, the famous temple of Aphrodite, uh, who was the protector, a woman goddess protector, who was given to Corinth by Poseidon, supposedly, and they had over 1,000 prostitutes working there, so it was a real tourist attraction. So Corinth was the seat of unbridled immorality. One commentator writes, the trait of being distinct as Christians was sorely lacking. At Corinth. In fact, of all the churches mentioned in the New Testament, the Corinthian church was probably the most secular. If the church at Philippi was known for its compassion and the church at Ephesus for its commitment, the church at Corinth was known for its carnality. And historically, in the first century, the city of Corinth was so vile that to be called a Corinthian meant that you were a person of low moral standards, which in many parts of the world, that's how Americans are viewed and that's how Europeans and those in the West are viewed as people with low moral standards because of all the things that go on and everything that's acceptable in our culture. Now in Corinth's case, obviously these cultural trends had found their way into the church as they often do. Verse 14 again, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Do not be mismatched. And this was an Old Testament metaphor that was based upon Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, that prohibited the yoking together of an ox and a donkey to plow. The ox was the clean animal and the donkey was the unclean animal. People would have also personally witnessed this, how difficult it was as well on the animals to get them both to work together. They had to work harder than they normally should. So a farmer would have to be cruel to them, would have to whip them and drive them to get the donkey to go faster and to get the ox to pull more weight. And a yoke happened to be a wooden frame with a bar and loops on the end that would fit around necks of two evenly sized animals, linking them together and forcing them to function as one. The law reflected that it was wrong, frankly cruel, to yoke together two animals of unacceptable size, species, and nature. 
The rest of verse 14 says, For what do righteousness and wickedness uh, have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What partnership can kind, gracious, loving people have with a person who doesn't care anything about doing what is right? What partnership can a heart that loves fairness and justice have with someone who disregards the truth, uh, uh, who has no respect for authority and does whatever pleases them in life? This is a guaranteed formula for heartache, linking up righteousness with wickedness. And what about light and darkness. Those are real opposites, and Christians are to live in the light, and we're to let our light shine. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before people in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Light in the Bible is a symbol of good, of understanding, and of awareness. Darkness is ignorance. It's inappropriate behavior. It's willful, evil intent. And such a union is a formula for disaster. Now, there are five rhetorical questions that are being offered up here. Rhetorical questions answer themselves. Like, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? They have nothing in common. What about light and darkness? What fellowship do they have in common? They have nothing in common. In fact, when I'm counseling couples and they want to get married, I encourage them that you have to marry a Christian because you want to have in life a common treasure. You want to have in life a common blueprint and you want to have in life a common source of strength. I tell them, I can't imagine going to a worship service and being blessed or, or experiencing God moving in your life in some big way or God's favor somehow or something you've learned in the Bible and coming home and have no one to share it with because they don't treasure the same thing that you treasure. Or I can't imagine trying to go through life and figure out how to do marriage and how to raise a family and how to conduct yourself in business if you don't have the same blueprint as your spouse has for doing those things. You're trying to follow God's word and look to God and they're trying to follow their family's tradition or what their peers tell them or or what their own personal opinions happen to be. Or I can't imagine uh, going through the difficulties that life has to offer and not having the same common source of strength where one is trusting God and looking to God and looking to God's word for guidance and the other is looking to illicit drugs or illicit relationships or alcohol or their peers or, or, or looking to gambling or something else to fill the void and the need in their life. What possible fellowship does light have with darkness? Or how about Christ and Belial? You know, Belial here is the devil, is Satan and his demons. You know, what harmony is there between Satan and God? There's none. All of Satan's activities are worthless. And to join up with that is to set yourself up for some serious heartache. You know, during the Civil War, some brothers actually ended up on the opposite side of the, of the conflict. And historical writings tell us that their greatest fears were that they would end up going up against one another in battle and that they would have to try and take each other's lives. Well, being yoked to unbelievers is to invite God's plan for your life and Satan's plan for your life to intersect. And the great fear is that your loyalties to each will end up clashing. Pastor Ray Stedman shares a prayer that a young woman wrote on her wedding day as she was getting married to an unbelieving man. Here's the prayer. Dear God, I can hardly believe that this is my wedding day. I know I haven't been able to spend much time with you lately with all of the rush of getting ready for today, and I'm sorry. 
I guess, too, I feel a little guilty when I try to pray about all of this since Larry still isn't a Christian. But, oh, Father, I love him so much. What else can I do? I just couldn't give him up. Oh, you must save him some way, somehow. You know much how much I have prayed for him and the way we've discussed the gospel together. I've tried to not appear too religious. I know, but I, that's because I didn't want to scare him off. Yet he is, isn't antagonistic, and I don't understand why he hasn't responded. Oh, if only he were a Christian. Dear Father, please bless our marriage. I don't want to disobey you, but I love him, and I want to be his wife. So please be with us, and please, God, don't spoil my wedding day. He goes on to say, it was a sincere prayer, but it was a very sadly mistaken prayer. Though she did not realize it, what she was really praying was something like this. Dear Father, I don't want to disobey you, but I must have my own way at all costs. For I love what you do not love, and I want what you do not want. So please be a good father and deny yourself and move off of your throne and let me take over. If you don't like this, all I ask is that you bite your lip and say nothing and don't spoil my wedding day. Let me have my evil. What harmony is there possibly between Christ and Belial? And what is there between in common between a believer and an unbeliever? There isn't anything. There's no common ground. There are competing values, competing priorities, competing goals, holiness, purity, and service to others. Do not line up with self-centeredness, greed, and pride. It is a recipe for major clashes. And verse 16 says, what, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Now, corporately, we are the temple of God. And individually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You're not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The bottom line in all of this is a yoke is when non-believers get Christians to join them in their idolatrous worship. And Jesus used the term for yoking in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, 28 and 29, when he invited us to be his bondservants, to take his yoke upon us, for his yoke is easy, he said, and his burden is light. And the emphasis in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, is upon whom the yoke causes us to serve. It would be in those times a slave to a master. It would be an individual to the demands of the Pharisees. Or it would be a disciple to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the entire message of whom we serve and who we are yoked to circles back to who owns us. Now, Bible experts tell us that the most common idols in American for American Christians that they serve and get unequally yoked to are materialism, health, wealth, and pleasure. They refer to these as soft idols. And life in modern America, they say, is based upon the ethics of balancing our service to each of these. Now, each of these in and of themselves are not necessarily bad things. It is good to be healthy. 
It's a blessing to have wealth. It can be a good thing to achieve. And pleasure, as the Bible teaches, rightly received from God, is a gift from God. But where the trouble comes is when we become unequally yoked with unbelievers in their idolatrous quest and service to these gods and these values. When life becomes more about our physical health than our spiritual well-being, we have a problem. When, the, when wealth and the pursuit of success and achievement become more important to us than the church and service to the Lord or giving faithfully and generously to the Lord's work, then we are clearly yoked to an idol. When our value is found in what we own or the image that we want to project more than being a servant of God, then there's some equal yoking that's going on. When having a good time, laughing, drinking, joking, feasting, pleasure, and making memories outweigh sacrifice, placing others first and valuing and respecting others, we are seeing face-to-face some yoking to cultural idols. When being the best and being better than others, when standing out is more important than your relationship to your spouse, than to your family, to the church, or just living a balanced life, then we are deeply entrenched in idolatry. If we never have enough, if we always want more, if we envy other people and we selfishly and fearfully guard what we have, we have slipped right into the idolatry of the world around us. Well, if Christians so, can so easily be swayed by the culture, what are they going to do if the government or even their employers demand that they affirm secular and godless orthodoxies. Rod Dreher in his book, The Benedict Option, a strategy for Christians in a postmodern nation, says the seed of righteousness in America will not necessarily be the blood of martyrs, but it most likely will be a smaller paycheck, a demotion, a less prestigious job, and a path to a diminished reputation. And no one wants to lose income or social standing, but these are not the real issues. The issue is how will we respond when each of these precious societal values of health, wealth, materialism, and pleasure are threatened in our lives? If they are good gifts from God, we will grieve their losses and we will maintain our faith in Christ But if they are idols, we will be willing to compromise or say or do anything to keep them. Take a look right now figuratively at your own shoulders. What yokes are you bearing? And who are you linked up with in life? And also, if if you are at risk of being, if these things are at risk of being taken away from you now, what would happen to your Christian confession? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 7, verse 1, clearly teaches that we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. God has called us to be distinct, which means being united to believers only, and that we belong exclusively to God. Look at verses 16 through 18. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I, live, I will live with them and walk among them and will be their God and they will be my people. 
Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, verse 17 there, Paul is kind of freely quoting a little bit from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 11, doing a little teaching, so it's not directly word for word. But what he's doing there is God is requiring purity of life and separation from the Israelites living in Babylonian captivity. Because at the end of their captivity, they're going to be given this opportunity to go home, to go back to the promised land, back to the city of David, back to freedom. But to be ready for that, they were going to have to separate themselves from the pagan Babylonian ways. And for many, Babylonian captivity was pretty good. It was prosperous, yeah. They had to compromise their faith a little, but the trade-off was a pretty good quality of life in Babylon. Besides, Jerusalem and Judea was this war-torn city and this war-torn country lying in ruins for over 70 years. The fortified wall around the city was in shambles. Who wants to leave a good life of prosperity and go back to that? And it was also really difficult to get the priests and the Levites to go back because they depended on the offerings that were brought to worship. So leaving a prosperous place like Babylon and going to an impoverished region like Judea and Jerusalem, that was a tough sell. Well, I want you to know that your pastoral search committee uh, looking for an associate pastor of worship has been working very hard. And at this point, we don't have a whole bunch of applicants for the job. Not a single one has come even from within our denomination. And our posting closes in 10 days. And some people, of course, we know wait until the end to apply. And so we anticipate a few more coming in uh, here toward the end. But a few weeks ago, I called our superintendent to talk to him about this because we're kind of surprised by uh, the limited number of applicants. And he told me it's tough to find pastors all over. Number one, you're looking for an associate pastor role, not just a worship director or not just a uh, music director. Number two, he said, most ministry training right now is geared toward metropolitan areas. So many young people coming out in ministry think that you can only do ministry if you wear skinny jeans and can sit in a coffee shop. And, and that makes it difficult for you guys. He said, number three, you're rural and you're conservative. And most worship leaders tend to lean a little bit more left than they do right. And they also, many of them, do not want to live in rural communities. He said, number four, you're looking for someone to lead both a contemporary and a traditional services, which I think you're looking for a needle in the haystack because most young worship leaders coming out right now aren't trained in hymnody. They're not trained in liturgy or, or in traditional kinds of worship. They're trained strictly for contemporary worship. Number five, he said, you live pretty much north. And a lot of people, they want to go vacation up north, but they don't want to live up north. He said, there's a church in Duluth that's a sister congregation of yours that's had an opening for a senior pastor for two years. They've had two applicants for the job. Uh, in Bemidji, there's a wonderful covenant church there, and they, for 20 years, have struggled to find pastors. They have a pastor now, but they've had a hard time. International Falls Covenant Church looked for years and years to find a new senior lead pastor, couldn't find one. Finally, they promoted one of their staff 
to that position because people don't want to live in these uh, places like this. He said, we have 20 churches right now in rural communities that can't be filled, and we're struggling to find somebody to fill these uh, positions. In fact, one of those committees has been meeting for over two years looking for a new pastor. They've met over 100 times. Folks, we are facing a real challenge right now. Even though we're a healthy missional church, that would be a good place for people to come. So we're going to ask you to pray for our committee that we can find that godly person that God has for us. But verse 19 here tells us that if we are willing to separate from the world, God will be our Father. Friends, there's no feeling in the world like being exclusively uh, the Heavenly Father's. And verse 1 of chapter 7 is going to tell us here, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. God calls us to live distinct lives as believers because we are exclusively God's. Here's the deal. The heart of sin is to bring an idol into the most holy place. What is the most holy place? The temple. And what does the New Testament say? The temple is our lives. It's the body of believers and it's our individual bodies. And we bring these idols into and the sin into these places by adopting the values and the goals of the godless culture that's around us. The temptation to idolatry today is not to deny God outright, but to distrust God, his all-sufficiency, and his sovereignty. So we continue to need God, but we need something else to see us through, to make us happy. We, we need God, but we need a better job. We need God, but we need a better spouse. We need God, but we need a better church. We need God, but we need a better house. We need God, but we need our neighbor's boat. We need God, but we need this exotic vacation. We need God and something else. Dr. Scott Haifman says Paul, Paul's concern here to purify the church from idolatry has become unintelligible to the modern church in America. And he says it's due to the old adage that what you do in moderation today, you will do in excess tomorrow. What used to be out of bounds for Christians not that many years ago is now completely accepted. And he says the key to stopping this is not more willpower, it's more worship. Perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. That's the solution. So let me ask you, do you gather here on Sundays really desiring to worship God? Do you sing to God when you come here? Are you singing to God? Are you exalting God? Is praise coming out of your mouth to God? Do you come so that you can corporately pray to God with others? Do you come to hear from God? Or are you just going through the motions? See, biblically, the church is the ecclesia. That's the called out assembly. We are called out from the world. And by the way, if you are walking with the world, it will result in you walking like the world. So worship will be hard for you. It will be hard to sing. It will be hard for things to come out of your mouth. It will be hard for you to exalt God. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 uh, says it well. Do not be misled. Bad company 
corrupts good character. Being unequally yoked can also biblically have a military element to it, meaning stay in your own rank. You hear that? Stay in your own rank. That means the called out assembly. That means that God calls us to be distinct. That means that we're united to believers only. And that means that we recognize that we belong exclusively to God. If so, then worship won't be hard for us. We will desire to worship. We will long to worship. We will sing out. We will be blessed by worship. And we will, with all of our being, declare God's worth. Let's pray together. God, thank you again for the opportunity to do this sermon series through the first six chapters of 2 Corinthians that we called Second Wind. Lord, we've needed this. In the world we live in, there's so many idols. In fact, hearing what was going on in Corinth and how carnal it was, Lord, we look around us. It sounds like the world we're living in right now. And God, we know that you have given these words for us and preserved them thousands of years so that we would hear this message and recognize that we are to be distinct, that we're to be separate, we're to be uh, ambassadors of yours and ministering in, in the, the ministry of reconciliation but not to adopt everything that's under the same umbrella of this culture and these ideas and values that so regularly float around. But God, we're to be distinct. You're called out assembly, your people, united together, recognizing that we're exclusively yours. And oh God, will we worship you because of all that. May we do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.